0: We're spending the next few minutes of WGTD's morning show with an author by the name of Mac Montandon. He has written for the New York Times, New York Magazine, Salon, among others. And uh, he is responsible for an endlessly interesting book called Jetpack Dreams, one man's up and down but mostly down search for the greatest invention that never was. Uh, Many of us remember vividly, that image from the opening ceremonies of the 1984 Olympics when a man by the name of Bill Souter actually flew through the air for a few seconds in a jetpack, something straight out of Buck Rogers or other science fiction or out of one of the Star Wars movies. And this is actually a technology that has been tantalizing us for some time now, and it feels just beyond our grasp in terms of something that could be put into the hands of of ordinary people and somehow become part of our ordinary everyday lives. Uh, Something which was predicted and uh, practically promised at one point in time, but it just has not quite come to be. Uh, There are all kinds of scientific uh, challenges that are involved in uh, allowing a human being to fly through the air in this way. But uh, just because it's uh, not easy doesn't mean we can't dream about this possibility. And indeed, this book is about that uh, persistent dream that so many humans have of flying, of literally defying gravity. And to do so in this particular way is a a particularly uh, difficult matter. And a lot of brilliant people and people with a passion have been working hard uh, over the years uh, to solve this, uh, this challenge in a way that makes it practical and workable. Well, Mac Montandon has really uh, immersed himself in this world, in this culture, if you will, and has uh, met some of the people who have been most crucial in the, the, the development of this technology, which uh, unfortunately, as far as real life, everyday usage is concerned, still remains a dream just out of reach. Hence the title again, Jetpack Dreams, One Man's Up and Down but Mostly Down Search for the Greatest Invention That Never Was. Available in paperback from Doc Capo Press. And Mac Montandon, we welcome you to The Morning Show.
1: Well thanks so much Greg, Uh, it's really great to to speak with you and that was uh, among my favorite uh, introductions. You really, I think, uh, got to the heart of the matter with the the book and the Enduring Dream.
0: Great, great, thank you. Say a word about the sort of midlife crisis, which, in some respects at least, really precipitated your pursuit of this matter.
1: Right. Well, it might sound odd to put in those terms in a way for a guy who was, you know, in his mid 30s um, when I got serious about both the uh, sort of pursuit for a working jetpack and immersing myself in the culture and then subsequently the book. But as I write in the book, um, you know, uh, that in a way, it it is very possible to consider that midlife, and so um, I was well enough along, in any case, to realize that if I was ever going to sort of attempt this, um, which, as you noted in the just earlier, um, has been sort of an ongoing dream and fantasy, not just for me, but as I discovered, many, many folks all around the world. if I was ever going to really get serious about it, it had to be soon. Um, you know, not just because I was getting on in, in years, but also, uh, you know, as I guess makes sense. Um, anyone who's really going to to, fl- to even fly these things, even just for a few seconds, um, you know, get, the, there aren't too many folks who are, you know, well beyond their, their 40s really who have flown these things, um, the existing models such as they are. So. It was definitely um, you know, a seize the day moment, and uh, <clears throat> as the book bears out, um, seizing the actual device was, was a little trickier than I anticipated.
0: You had a conversation with a friend who <laughs> at one point, I suppose semi-rhetorically, posed the question, where's my jetpack? And uh, yeah. maybe you could just explain a little bit about what was behind that question right. for your friend, but maybe even more importantly how that question, in various ways, has been posed by quite a few people over the years. Yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, that, again, that really does get to the heart of, of the book. And uh, so, right, I um, was speaking of, with with a good friend of mine uh, named Jofi, and, um, and, you know, I think it had probably, you know, we danced around the topic here and there um, for a couple of years even before, but... You know, like a lot of uh, guys and and, and women, too, our age. We were then, you know, early to mid-thirties. This is a a, a machine that really sort of symbolizes this uh, unrealized future. Um, For me, I was first made aware of uh, the beauty and potential and and dynamic qualities of the thing um, while watching the Star Wars movies. And, you know, oddly... It was the villain Boba Fett, who is sort of most famously a jetpack wearer and, and pilot and flyer in those in those films. And, I might add, he meets, the first time we see him fly, it's a, it's a, it's a flight time of, I don't know, about two, two and a half seconds before he meets his demise. So, you wouldn't necessarily think that would be the recipe to, to excite uh, a kid's imagination. And yet, you know, like a lot of guys, that was of semi-obsessed with with the Boba Fett character. He was mysterious. He was cool, uh, and he had a jetpack. So, um, you know, I, I was I would guess around ten or so, eleven, when I when I first um, saw those films and, and was aware of the technology. And so, you know, to different degrees over the years, it uh, was, was there with me, and, and would be something that came up here and there. I mm-hmm. think for myself, for my friend who posed the question, and for uh, many others um, things really got more serious once the calendar flipped past the year 2000 um, you know just as as uh, the movies uh, all, you know in, in the 80s and 90s that that was always the, the future and so once we got into 2000, 2001, 2003 you know here we were this we were living in what pop culture and, and even science had predicted would be this glorious future and yet when you look around, you know, not only wasn't there a jetpack, there wasn't really a hovercraft or, and certainly not a time machine.
0: So. Mm. Uh, you, yeah. at, at one point early in the book, you, you quote this from the New York Observer. This is written in early 2007. Like kids outgrowing Santa Claus, we've spent the past seven miserable years learning to stop dreaming about the world of tomorrow. Why would we? in the continued absence of solar panel jetpacks plutonium-powered time machines or even fully electric forget flying cars most of us still arrive at our earthbound offices via that great marvel of 1904 the subway which rarely gets faster cleaner cheaper or more frequent but instead everyday further erodes like the ruins at Troy Americans have always assumed that one day we'd awaken in our utopian future like tourists at Disney World wandering happily from Frontierland into Tomorrowland. We envisioned it in books, in movies, on TV, in bedtime stories, but we took the future for granted as if it were a wife, and maybe it escaped this neglectful marriage, changed its name, and skipped town. A couple paragraphs later, I think you you phrased this so beautifully in, in bringing it into your own life. You said... Uh, This question from your friend Jofi had plucked some deeper psychological string inside me. In other words, this—that question really spoke to a a very deep hunger, which you have had, and which a lot of other people have had, and probably a hunger that to this day you don't even fully understand.
1: No, absolutely. I I think absolutely it um, is—you know—it's a strange and paradoxical thing because. We look around at this world we're, we we're in now, and in many ways, there are endless technological wonders. Um, you know, as I mentioned in the book, you can keep your entire musical library in the front pocket of your pants. Um, you know, there are you can get you know directions to anywhere at any time, and soon you'll be able to do it in a 3D device, uh, as is also your telephone. So. You know, in many ways, uh we have sort of entered that magical, mysterious future that you just alluded to, but um in other in in other very poignant ways we're right, we're still riding the grubby subway, which uh so it is sort of a strange paradox and 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 just I think increases sort of the yearning to to get to this other
0: future utopia. Hmm. And in particular this notion of flying fantasies and uh, what you call at one point the greatest promise never kept. We're speaking with Mac Montandon about his book Jetpack Dreams. Uh, in your second chapter called The Past is Prologue, you explore some of the earliest examples of this notion of of a human flying through the air. Uh, not in a plane, but uh, as an individual, self-propelled flyer, and th- we're taken all the way back to the 1920s, and uh, to a character initially called Anthony Rogers, who eventually becomes uh, uh, Buck Rogers, right. and uh, uh, and some of these dreams are emerging right around the same time as another technology. Which uh, uh, held some promise, at least for the time. Talk about the rocket and the dreams of jetpacks.
1: Yeah, I mean that. M- most people who who have thought about this stuff at all, uh, you know, will point to the year 1928 really as as when um, when the the fantasy, the dream, really took hold in a meaningful way. Uh, the first uh, Buck Rogers story right then he was Anthony Rogers appeared in what was once an enormously popular science fiction magazine called Amazing Stories Um, and it didn't take long at all uh, before the the fantasy went from the page to the screen and we were seeing you know not only Buck Rogers uh, TV and and film versions but, but other productions, pop culture productions and so then you've got not only these, these wonderful, uh, compelling comics delivering you the, the images and the stories of Buck Rogers, but you have the, the moving pictures too. And I think that, that that, you know, then it's just off and running or flying in this case, because once you can see the thing in action, it's, I, I think it's impossible not to sort of be drawn into that idea and, and, and become even obsessed with it. Um, and so... But right, I mean, there there was more practical, uh, utilitarian, and and sort of immediate things happening at the same time, and and uh, rocket technology was being developed. This isn't al- it's also not very long past when the Wright brothers got going. So it's really just an incredible moment where technology and fantasy was was sort of um, converging, and uh, you know it's not. Hard to cast your mind back and realize just sort of how compelling that would seem and how dynamic the dreams would be at that point. That you could combine what was going on in the real world with rocket technology and development with what you were seeing in, in comics and you know. And then it wasn't even that long after that in the 50s and 60s when newspapers were ha- had headlines announcing. This is the future. So once the news is telling you that, I think, uh, you know, you can see why the, the dream is endured. I
0: hmm. think. We, we've we been talking, of course, about, for instance, uh, Buck Rogers, which goes way, way, way back. Uh, but You mentioned somebody in your book that I, I wasn't aware of, although I suspect I have seen this person's work. But a certain commercial illustrator um, doing work in the late 1950s, and you say... Uh, this person really did more than anyone to, in your words, foment the collective notion that soon enough, robot maids, uh, robot maids, flying cars, and yes, rocket pack-powered mailmen would be touching down in a neighborhood near you. Uh, tell our listeners briefly about this uh, talented illustrator and this series called "Closer Than We Think."
1: Right, you're, you're, you're t- talking about a guy named Arthur Raidbow who. Um I wasn't aware of until doing research on the book, but um, it it really is, I I really recommend anyone should, um, you know, just even Google a little bit around um, on his name, Arthur Raedbaugh, and and you'll soon come upon um, some really just remarkable uh, drawings and illustrations. Um, His series was enormously popular at its peak. Um, I forget now exactly how many, but it was in off the top of my head, I think it was about four hundred or so newspapers, um, and right. It's just astonishing to think that he was doing this now, you know, over fifty years ago. Um, they're they're gorgeous illustrations, and but beyond that, they, uh, at least from this, from you know the two thousand and ten vantage, when you look at them, they look like exactly what what we expected. I mean, it's it's a combination of the world we see around us now with um, just a just an incredible sort of leap forward. Hmm. Where, uh, you know, a, a Disney World monorail is whizzing past a, a, a condo that looks like a space
0: pod. <laughs> and, of course, you also trace not only people who were drawing pictures of such things, but also people who were... Working in labs, I mean, in a very concrete sort of way, trying to make this about more than entertaining pictures, but ultimately reality, particularly the uh, tireless exploits of someone by the name of Wendell Franklin Moore. Um, you tell us that uh, that this uh, this gentleman, Mr. Moore, uh, dove headlong into his work thriving in those heady days of engineering when any and every innovation of the air seemed just on the horizon. Tell us about some of the things which uh, this Mr. Moore did uh, in uh, in pursuit of this dream.
1: Yeah, he is one of an illegally young age um, cleaning uh, airline airplanes at the nearest uh, airport. Um, and so, you know, that was from very early on in life, he was very into this stuff. And um, like so many other folks I met and spoke with, um, you know, came eventually came across the Buck Rogers comics and, and was essentially instantly obsessed um, with this idea. Um, and there wasn't much he could do immediately, of course, but... Once he started working for Bell Aerosystems, which was then based in upstate New York, um, in the '50s, uh, not long after he took an engineering post there, uh, I think he sort of realized, you know, he was now finally in position to sort of try to act on and realize this long-held dream. So, um, you know, one day the sort of I'm not sure if it's apocryphal, but I've heard it recounted so many times that I tend to believe it's true. One day he was out um, on the wet in California at uh, a Bell plant out in California, and he was testing um, what, what was then... Uh, he was then working on supersonic jets, the X-1 series of supersonic jets for Bell, and he picked up a stick and drew in the sand uh, the very first rendering of what would eventually become something he called the rocket belt, and it was called this for the simple reason that It used uh, rocket technology, and the pilot uh, was strapped in with what was essentially a seat belt. So there you have rocket belt. But uh, yeah, I mean, in order to construct even the the early prototypes, there was you know of course no budget for this stuff. Uh, Here, Bell was working on well, they're famous for their helicopters, and they were also working on early stuff for for the Mercury space flights. And so um, the you know the suits were not about the start funding a jetpack project um, despite all of Wendell Moore's uh, intensity Um, and so he he had a a small band of uh, renegade engineers and pilots um, around him and he did they all did essentially whatever they needed to to build these prototypes which involved (laughs) uh, even sort of borrowing or if you will um, parts from different departments at Bell and they slapped something together that the way I've heard it, um, you know, involved one of the kids, or uh, one of the uh, engineer's son's bicycle handles. There was duct tape on the thing. It probably wasn't that that beautiful to behold, but eventually they did come up with something that could fly without a safety wire, and, hmm. uh, and, and it did.
0: Interestingly enough, uh, April 20th, 1961, which is in some respects... Uh, a day when the the, the first significant jetpack flight occurs, 112 feet, but still, <laughs> it, it happened, was right around the time, uh, days away from when Alan Shepard took his suborbital flight uh, uh, aboard uh, Mercury, and it it's so so ironic in a sense, and not entirely a coincidence, I suppose, that that we see these two. Uh, breakthrough moments except that the one turns out not to be nearly the breakthrough that Alan Shepard's uh, space flight was. One of the things you tell us uh, shortly thereafter is that because this was the longest uh, that a jet pack flight could be at that moment in time, the usefulness of this, particularly for the military, right. was thought to be extremely limited And 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 there was part of the problem in terms of who was going to be willing To seriously fund investigation of this.
1: That's absolutely right. Yeah, I mean, there was initially a lot of uh, military interest um, and enthusiasm. You know, there's a photo in the book of uh, a Bell jetpack pilot named Hal Graham um, doing a flight demo for none other than than John F. Kennedy. So, you know, it went to the top, the, the, the interest and enthusiasm for the machine at one point um, and yeah as you, as you just mentioned uh, there were considerable drawbacks to it being sort of a practical uh, device in the field. I think you know the idea was that it would be something that the average uh, soldier with minimal training could could just strap on and, and use in the battlefield as a to give themselves. Uh, an advantage, um, and which is why uh, the most famous Bell pilot, and probably the most famous jetpack pilot of all time, and the guy who flew at the 1984 Olympics, uh, Bill Suter. Uh, you know, it's partly because he had no experience as a pilot that he was picked for the job, because Wendell Moore wanted to sort of prove to the military that that just an average an average Joe off the street could fly this thing, which mm. he did prove, but right there are other drawbacks like this 20-second uh, flight time maximum, and the the noise is pretty astonishing too, so makes it hard to sneak up on the, the enemy.
0: <laughs> and, of course, uh, th- those practical challenges aside, this was uh, a dream of Wendell Moore's for the rest of his life. You quote uh, uh, his daughter saying, that was his dream, that it, meaning the jetpack, would become like a second car. I mean, he so much uh, wanted this to be uh, part of, of uh, our everyday lives, in a sense. Uh, initially, uh, th- those initial efforts don't quite pan out, but others come along to take up the cause, including a, a gifted man by the name of Nelson Tyler, just uh, say a, a word or two about Nelson Tyler's efforts uh, towards this same dream.
1: Yeah, uh, Nelson built the machine that Bill Souter flew at the 84 Olympics in, El- in Los Angeles. Um, Nelson worked in the film business. He was, his big breakthrough was, was building a machine that enabled uh, helicopters to do smooth tracking shots. So whenever you see an action movie... Uh, you know, and there's a great shot either from above or from the air somewhere, uh, that's because of Nelson Tyler. Um, and he, so he was obviously living out, uh, near Hollywood and one day went to see a demonstration of the bell rocket belt at Disneyland. And like so many others, he was in, you know, immediately sort of obsessed with this thing. And, um, uh, unlike a lot of others, he was in position to do something about it because he had the time, money, and space to build his own machine, which um, he did. He also had just, just has a remarkable um, mind, a remarkable scientific <laughs> mind, and he was, you know, all self-taught. Just figured out <laughs> how to put this thing together, and he, you know, he modeled it very much on uh, the Bell belt. But he, um, yeah, he's a fascinating and, and incredible guy.
0: Speaking of fascinating people, you have met many of them, and much of the book is taken up with your personal pursuit of of where the jetpack is now, and who has them, who's making them. Is it possible to really fly through the air as uh, as uh, as you have long dreamt? Uh, one of the most interesting things you do is. Uh, join up with something called the yahoo rocket belt group and boy as you describe these people uh (laughs) they sound like a really uh interesting group and uh and of course they are fired by the very very same passion i mean lots of different people gather in groups uh, around various passions and for this group the jetpack is the passion
1: yes and uh right they're so passionate that um Lucky for me that just after I started uh, researching in earnest for the book, um, they held what they called the first international rocket belt convention up near Niagara, New York, um, where Bell's labs were uh, once headquartered. Uh, And so it was a weekend where all these guys came, you know, literally from all over the world, from Barcelona, New Zealand, Germany, Japan. it was just, just remarkable uh, to see just how sort of far-reaching this this thing went. Um, and there was a flight demonstration as part of that convention. Um, a, a, a pilot named Eric Scott uh, did a demonstration for a company that's based in, in Denver um, mm-hmm. called GoFast. And they are best known as kind of an energy drink company, but they, years ago, developed a working rocket belt really um, modeled on the, the bell rocket belt again uh, I think they initially it was you know meant as really just a promotional tool nothing gets your attention like a, a, a jetpack of course and so they would use it um, at big events to to sort of market their products but it's gone on from there and uh, you know they've done demonstrations all over the world and that was the first time I got to see. Does this thing actually work in real life? And I have to say, it's, you know, it's it's just, it's like magic. I think I write in the book. It just seems impossible when you see a man stuff the ground like that. But uh, there
0: it was. <laughs> that and much more in this book called Jetpack Dreams, one man's up and down but mostly down search for the greatest invention that never was. Uh, the book is a paperback for, now from Doc Koppel Press and, Mac Montandon, I so enjoyed the book and talking with you about it today on The Morning Show. Very, very best wishes to you.
1: Thank you so much, and to you too. I appreciate it.